Welcome! The University of Central Florida's Office of Diversity and Inclusion brings you Matters of Diversity with Dr. B with your host, Dr. S. Kent Butler. This show is brought to you by UCF Foundation. Thank you. Hotep. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Matters of Diversity with Dr. B. I'm excited to have you all be with me today, and I'm definitely excited about my guest, um, Reverend Naomi Tutu. She has been a good friend of mine. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Uh, so as I was kind of sharing earlier, um, you and I, we met um, many, many years ago. Many, many, many years ago, letting people and, um, know how old so you are. <laughs> when we first met, you were my instructor. Mm -hmm. And so we weren't really friends. We were uh, maybe acquaintances. So, and then maybe I'll, I'll, I'll shave a year off and say maybe 24, maybe 23 years, we've been, been friends. And um, so after I got out of your classroom and, and got a chance to kind of <laughs> Get to know you a little bit differently. So um, I'm excited to have you um, kind of share your story and, and be a part of my journey um, in trying to bring to the university um, a podcast that is really about understanding, you know, how we navigate um, mm -hmm. in this world today. Mm -hmm. And um, you get to bring it from two continents, um, your experiences in South Africa, and also the things that are going on here in the United States. And so I guess my first question to you is, how, how are you doing? How are you surviving right now? I know you moved out to California in the, um, in the very, very nice area of California. Um, <laughs> so how, how, how are things out there? Oh, yeah. So it's, I mean, I, always, I tell people all the time that I've known all my life that God has a sense of humor. And I thought that God's biggest joke on me was having me live in Nashville for what <laughs> 20 years. And then, then I think that God just had a bigger joke that I'm now living in Beverly Hills. And I'm like, I'm probably the least Beverly Hills person you know. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, no, I don't know about that. You know, you had-, had Wait, 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 wait. See, I can see where that's going already, and I'm, I will not stand for it. But no, I mean, you know, um, I think like most of us, many of us, this time is really a time of stress. Um, uh, I just recently actually did a, a, a kind of a, a video, an audio really, with Common Hymnal, which is a, a group of mostly young people doing praise and protest um, songs. And, um, and the, the, the title of the piece that I did was, I moved from one South Africa to another. And was and basically talking about the, the experience of living through these three years, having lived through South Africa in the 70s and 80s. 
and the number of similarities that I am seeing. And um, in fact, uh, a fellow South African said, this, it, it really feels like PTSD, that you are going through a trauma that your body and your soul already recognizes as a trauma that you have lived through already. And so it's, yeah, it is, it has been a, a struggle um, to, to maintain even in, in the face of um, the level of, of violence against um, black people. I think one of the, the, the things that has been um, like a, a catalyst almost for me recently was the whole grand jury thing uh, around the Breonna Taylor case. To, right. you know, to hear that the, you know, the grand jurors are saying, no, this was not presented to us. All of these things around her death, we were presented only with the damage to the apartment. And again, this sense of this is a justice system that we're meant to, we're meant to trust takes me back to South Africa, to, you know, people being brought to court and just disappearing. And what is, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a, it's been a time. It's been so, a time. So in the work that I do uh, as a counselor, one of the things that you bring up, you say PTSD, but we talk about CTSD, which is continuous traumatic stress disorder. With, mm -hmm. In our community, it's those little incidents that continually happen over and over and over every day. And you're like, am I going crazy? What, what's happening to me? Um, because you start to have these different feelings throughout your body, right? There's stress that does all these different things to you because of what's going on. And, you know, just last night, and uh, it, it really struck me, I was watching the news and the ticker on the bottom of the, of the channel talked about a shooting that happened in Philly. And I was like, what in the world is going on, mm -hmm. right? And so in my mind, I'm like, another person's now passed on. I believe his name was Walter Wallace. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Yeah. Um, and re-traumatized. He, he, everyone in that community has to have been. It was daylight in the middle. And people were all outside. People were seeing it. The person who filmed it was saying, the one I saw anyway, was saying, oh my God, they shot him. They killed him. You, you hear that on the actual video. And so it really becomes, what are we living in? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I'm looking at the video and I'm saying, could they have not de-escalated that in any way? There's nothing that the first thing that they could do was to shoot this person. And when his mother went running to the body and was like, <laughs> like, what have you done? Can you imagine being the mother of a child who is gunned down in the street? And maybe the child wasn't doing the right thing. I don't know. I don't know the story. All I know is that we have to do better. We have to find a way to be able to de-escalate and get these situations under control, right? People have been asking me, could they have just shot him in the leg? Could they have done, why is it the immediate to shoot to kill? And I mean, and, and, and we can't leave out the fact that that race plays a role in this, right? Because right. 
how many times have we seen the police able to de-escalate when it's a white person who is being truly violent? Right. I mean, I, you know, I, I will never forget that they were able to bring a man out of a house after he had shot and killed a police officer, right? And, you, and so you're saying, okay, now if that is not a place that triggers police into right. going full out force, how is it that seeing somebody who the fact they they've had interactions with the family, they know that this is a person who has mental health issues. Right. So you're coming in knowing that and right. you still cannot deescalate. Right. So, you know, I and people will say, well, you know, he shouldn't, he should. And I'm like, well, except that we have so many examples of white people who shouldn't, shouldn't, whatever, and are still living and walking today. Right. So, and so you say, you know, you should have complied. Um, I think about it every time I'm driving, to tell you the truth, if I get pulled over, and I don't get pulled over, but when I think about it, but when a police officer siren goes off, um, I, I actually have a visceral reaction to it. Oh, yeah. Um, and when I'm driving and I'm like, did I do something? And, I, and then, and I, like, I know I didn't do anything. I know I'm driving the speed limit. I haven't crossed over the lines or anything like that. But it's an immediate reaction, you know, that just kind of goes through me that I don't know that people understand. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think that people don't want to do the work to understand, right? Because if you do the work and you and you begin to recognize the level of injustice and then you don't do anything then what kind of a human being are you so rather plead ignorance plead i don't understand plead you know he should have complied plead i you know the police are living under threat you plead anything that will give you ignorance so that you can live in a system of injustice without being taking action um, right. in your own life to, right. to, to change. To kind of mitigate um, some of the stuff that's happening in the world. So when you see the parallels mm -hmm. between what you grew up in in South Africa and here, um, I'm sure that you had some lessons that you learned in that whole process. Um, is there anything, are there lessons for America? Um, with this? So I was, I was joking with some friends. I was like, you know, um, I, so one of the things that we used to be told at home was, you know, how to deal with tear gas and, you know, the practical things and what happens when the police are shooting tear gas. And, you know, there were the brave people who would throw canisters back at the police, pick them up, you know, and, and throw them back. And tear gas canisters are actually hot when they when they shoot them. So you have to pick it up and throw it really fast to not get burnt. And you know the things about water and putting Vicks under your nose to counteract. And so I was and I was joking. I was like, "Hey, here I am in 2020, teaching my 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 children and their friends in the U.S." how to deal with tear gas, something that I never imagined. You have to revisit. Part of the skill that I am teaching my children, right? Wow. Um, so, I mean, so it, there's some, there are things that are just as practical as that, that 
what do you do when faced in, with a situation like that? But I mean, you know, the, the other is that I remember myself in the early to mid eighties in South Africa and feeling absolutely like there is no end in sight, right? That, you know, that the, the, the viciousness with which apartheid responded to the uprisings that started in, in, in 76 in Soweto and then were basically rolling up uprisings right until the 90s, that the, the level of repression that the South African government um, responded to those protests was, it was at a level that I was, you, I mean, they're shooting children in the streets. They're arresting teenagers and, 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 and putting them in solitary confinement. They, they're banning people. They are shooting and killing. You go to a funeral and at the funeral, the police come and shoot mourners. So then next week you're at another funeral for people. You know, so that, that level of, um, of repression just felt that it was so heavy and, and this sense that how are we ever going to get out of this system. Right. And so, so, and that to me is the lesson is that, you know, over and over people would say, our leaders would say, you know that a dying horse kicks hardest. And mm. so that to know that all of this response to protest is in fact, the, the, the kicking of a dying horse that is trying not to die. So apartheid was not willing to die. Mm. And, and, and so I, what I've said to, to young people that I am in, you know, interacting with is part of this recognition for me is this is the recognition of what happens when a system knows that its days are numbered, that, that the, the level of response to you know, I mean, like, look at the response to Black Lives Matter. Right. I mean, what is there in that to terrify anybody? For it then to become this whole thing about this is a, a plot to destabilize America. I mean, how crazy do you have to be to hear a statement that says Black Lives Matter and turn that into a terrorist threat? against the state. Right. And so to me, all of this harks back to those 80s in South Africa that when a system realizes that it has no legitimacy, right. that, there isn't, that, that there is no legitimacy and therefore its only response can be violence and, and repression. And then to do it in such a way as if it's not happening. Or that if it's happening, the victim is the one who caused it. Exactly, exactly. And that's exactly, I mean, that's the story all over the world of repressive regimes, right? Mm -hmm. Is that they, one, they protect the privileged in that system from knowing the full truth of what's going on. I don't know how many white South Africans came after, after the end of apartheid and said, we didn't know, we didn't know about 
the level of, of, of police brutality in black neighborhoods. We didn't know that people were being tortured and murdered, even as those stories were being covered, right? So there's a level in which the system um, protects those who are privileged from the full knowledge of what their privilege is based on. Right. And, and then vilifies those who speak out against the system, makes it as though they are the problem, not right. that the issue of racism and, and, and structural discrimination is the issue, but that there are these, what, what did somebody call the, you know, spoiled athletes wanting to kneel on the field. I mean, like, really, really, this is where yeah. you're gonna go. And so you miss the message, right? So I, I talk about that often is that a lot of times the message gets co-opted. Mm -hmm. That's really what I'm hearing you talk about is like, you've gone through, you shared your heart, you showed, you shared your soul, and then someone takes it and twists it. Exactly. And twists it. And, and, and it comes out such, uh, with such vileness. And then you're sitting there screaming, turning blue, and you're trying to get your humanity noticed and and it just goes by the wayside. And so you start to wonder, well, what's the point of me continuing to do this fight? Mm -hmm. If all it's gonna do is gonna turn out to be this way. And you know, so I have a question for you. Um, a lot of times people say that uh, with slavery here in the United States, you know, holds back 500, 400, 500 years um, to where there's just been this resiliency that comes out of black people who have lived through all of that, to have lived through slavery and, and trying to emancipate and to try to um, get to a point where you have land and, and to kind of, you know, um, be able to find equity. Mm -hmm. And some of us have, right? And not all, but to be able to go through all that and then to turn around and um, kind of forget where you come from, right? Or have other people say that, well, why can't the others of you do the same? Uh, the message there, right, is um, that you, you're your own problem, right? You cause your own strife. Um, again, goes back to why don't you just comply, right? So complying keeps people comfortable. Mm -hmm. Right. in that ignorance that you spoke about. And so how do what do you account for the number of years of resiliency that uh, the black and brown communities have that that's, that, that we're still we're still viable. We still have that hope that things are going to change. So I would have to say, um, just from my own experience, is what I've, I've always told people that for, my, for me, what has kept me has been the two things that are fundamental, if you like, to, to my identity. One is being an African woman and having that, that, that history, that story of our people, of all the things our people have gone through and have not simply survived, but have managed to thrive, even in the face of racist violence, even in the face of um, you know the kind of um, massacres that we talked about, that we talk about in terms of Tulsa, the massacres that have taken place in 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 black communities as white communities have seen black communities prosper, that that has been seen as a threat that. 
all, through all of that out, what the lesson has been for me is that this is, that we are a people who make a way in, in the midst of all kinds of darkness. So There's one, a gospel song like that. It's a, you know, I know. make a way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I went straight to it, you know. And, and then the, the second is my faith. And I think that, um, you know, that I am, I am struck over and over at the level of, of faith that brown and black bodied people have in, in God. Whatever we whatever we call God, that that I that 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 belief that we are indeed um, created in God's image, and that we have a place in God's creation that is a place of our full humanity, and that right. we will continue to strive until that full humanity is 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 recognized. And you and and I you know and I and I think that that is those two things are, are really the the key to looking at the experience of black and brown body people around the world that the that we continue to draw on our history even the history that has been hidden from us that right. attempt to hide history from us but that that people are. Are constantly educating themselves about um, the struggles on the African continent, the connection between colonialism and slavery, and therefore the connection between anti-colonial movements all over the world, in Asia, right. in Latin America, and in Africa, that, the, that those struggles we have taken on as being our struggle. And right. seeing those struggles succeed in, in different ways with sometimes with, you know, just two steps forward, one step back, but that, 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 that consistent push towards a, a, a society, a community, a world that recognizes our full humanity comes out of those two things. For right, me. right. So, you know, you know, you speak to it in terms of we seek equity and a place at the table mm -hmm. and but we don't seek retaliation yep you know and all of this i have not necessarily seen anyone from black and brown communities try to um to take over right so the narrative is oh you're going to take over I've, I've heard people say well if black people get in power it was a fear when president obama became president oh my god are you going to make all of us white people slaves? And nobody wants to revisit that. Not even black people want to revisit what that the horrors and the atrocities of that. So if you don't know your history, you're you're doomed to repeat it. Mm -hmm. We understand our history and know that we don't want to go back to that. But the narrative is you can't let black people get into power because if you let people get into power, then what's going to happen to white communities? And 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 think so that's why it's so. Uh, interesting that when the president currently says things like um, they're coming for your communities in suburbia, that message rings loud and clear with people who don't understand their history because they think that that's what we want to do. And it hasn't well, happened. Though, Ken, it's not that they don't understand their history. They do understand their history, but they think that our history is the same as theirs, that, that our, our aim, because they understand 
the history of the, um, you know, the forced removals of native people, the killing of, of, of native and indigenous people in this country, the reservations, they understand slavery and Jim Crow. And so they they know their history as much as they will say, well, that was way, way back in the past. They know it's not way, way back in the past. They know that that history, but what they don't understand is that a people coming out of oppression would not necessarily be seeking revenge because that is the narrative that they have, that they have built for themselves. You know, mm -hmm. I, 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 I always was, I was struck by how much people talked about how wonderful the Truth and Reconciliation Commission process was in South Africa and yeah. how, you know, that was a different way of dealing after conflict. But you notice that none of the Western powers have tried to use that system in any place where they have been in conflict. So in Iraq, when, when the US overran Iraq, they completely decimated that government and that military, they completely stripped it away and did not think about, maybe this is a place where we can do a system of truth and reconciliation so that the Iraqi people can rebuild a level of trust in one another. Right. Um, so, so, so the truth of the matter is, is that no, I, I, I do believe that um, the, the white privilege in this community know their history and it is their history that scares them in thinking about what we would do. And it was the same in South Africa. You know, they said that black people wanted to throw white people into the sea, that we wanted to slaughter white people and that if President Mandela ever became president, white people would not be safe anywhere in South Africa. In the time leading up to our first democratic election, white people were stocking up on everything, like canned fish and canned, you know, getting ready for this Armageddon, this slaughter that so you can find any toilet paper or any- um, There you go, toilet paper or disinfectant, right? Uh, that that preparing themselves from for this onslaught of, of black people. And then when after the election, this did not happen, then they tried to go give back the food. And you know, the grocery stores were like, no, no, you bought it, find a way to use it. We don't want it back. We don't but want that, it back. But you know, I think that, you know, I, I, I do call on, on white people to, to pay attention to what is it that you are projecting on to oppressed people in this country? What is the fear that comes out of your interaction, hmm. the historical interaction of, of, of white people in this country with the indigenous people, with black people, with people from um, uh, Mexico? You know, that given that most of California, you know, we talk about uh, Mexican people coming into California as though they weren't here before it was California, right? Okay. And, and so that to, to at least let us be honest in what it is that is the fear that white people, that people like um, the 45 can call upon with their dog whistles about taking over suburbia, that where does it come from? It doesn't come from any acts 
that black people have committed against white people. It comes from acts that white people have committed against black people and that they cannot imagine that that is not where our minds are. So where are our minds? <laughs> right now my mind is like seriously praying for okay. our election next week, the election results next week. Um, seriously praying, seriously calling people, texting people and saying to those of you watching this webinar, please vote, go and vote. Because if you don't vote, then you, you then don't complain. And then don't come to me and say anything because I will slap you if you come Ooh. to me. And well, say I, I, okay, so. Um, <laughs> I will slap you non-violently. Non-violently. I was raised non-violently. You were raised non-violently, yeah, <laughs> and you're a woman of the cloth, and so that's 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 a very so interesting. I would opinion. try and slap you non-violently, but but seriously though, that is that is where my mind is right now. It is that this is this is a a crossroads for this country, and hmm. as much as people um, are downplay the extent to which this government has been impacted, not this, not just the government, but the whole system, the whole democratic system has been impacted by what we have seen. I mean, most intensely in this past four years, but it has been basically since the eighties, really, that, that, okay. this, that these uh, attacks, if you like, on, um, on representative democracy, that the U.S. is meant to be have have been taking place, both politically and economically. Wow! And so I think that if if you don't recognize that we are in a a crossroads moment, a moment where we we are going to have to say what is the country that that we want to live in, and what is the country that we intend to pass on to those coming after us. Nice, nice. So when we think about all these things that are, that are occurring, um, the new executive order that's coming down, um, I know you're aware of that, um, the confirmation of um, Barrett on Monday evening, when you think about all of that, what's the thoughts that come up for you um, with regards to that? So, I mean, partly for me is this, this amazement actually that the majority of Americans are not seeing these as attacks on their democracy. That, you know, um, that, that people are, accept, are normalizing completely abnormal behavior in the political and the economic arena. And, um, and, and, and one of the things that I, I have said since 2016 is don't don't then ask how could Germans have gone along with Nazism? How could Germans have continued to live normal lives as their country was annihilating um, annihilating people? Right. Because they they didn't start with concentration camps annihilating people. They started with um, executive orders by Hitler about 
what, what, who could be seen as a citizen, about who could own property, about who had the right to safety in their homes and in their communities. That it, it started off with small attacks, if you like, on the democratic process. And, and people kept saying, in Germany, they kept saying, well, you know, something horrible could never happen here. We are a cultured and sophisticated country. Right. And in this country, people keep saying, we have checks and balances even as each of those checks and balances is falling by the wayside and is being completely ignored, keep saying, well, our democracy is strong. No, democracy is in fact one of the weakest forms of government because it relies on a, a, an adherence to the idea of the rights of individuals and a, an ongoing process of listening and dealing with um, injustices in a way that moves the whole community forward. And if you get in power and in place, people whose only interest is in um, accumulating wealth for themselves and, and, and those who they identify with, if you get in power, people whose only interest is in accumulating power so that they can accumulate wealth, then democracy, that is how democracy dies. And so um, the, what, I, what I am most um, worked up about, I think, is the level of um, normalization of completely abnormal things. That you have a president who says, that an, a, a, a plot to kidnap a governor, a sitting governor could be and could maybe and maybe not. What the hell? <laughs> how, is, how do you then say that we have a system of justice where the, you know, there, there is evidence of this plot that, you know, and, and that a government leader has been threatened. And yes. the idea that, you know, as the plot was being unfolded, that they were going to blow up bridges, they were going to attack the police to sow confusion. And the head of the country is saying, maybe, maybe not. If that doesn't scare you, I don't know what will. And Please. if you don't see that as a, a, a weakening of the democratic foundation of this country, then I don't know what you are waiting to see to recognize as a weakening. You said a, you said a mouthful. <laughs> often and often, my children. Often and often. Too many. So I, too you know, I, I I listen to you and and I think about it in terms of the types of things that have been happening around um, here at UCF. You've been to UCF, um, and we're trying to change um, things and terms of how we bring people to, to campus uh, with regards to our recruiting process and our retention process, um, how students can kind of become admitted into the university. Um, when you start seeing all these other things happening and, um, and we're in the midst of COVID and all these things that um, 
make people turn against one another? How do we how do we save ourselves? Well, I mean, if if I had the answer for that, I would have had like ten Nobel Peace Prizes by now. I can give you a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> give me one of those one of those thought processes. <laughs> but I mean, you know, really, for me, it go it comes back to um, two or three things. One is that if you are not willing to acknowledge the history that has brought us to where we are today, then there is there then there is little hope of moving forward. So I I say I say let us look at those places, let's look for the places and institutions that are are trying to build a new way and 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 accept even the small victories that come our way as 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 laying a foundation for us so one of the things that i am holding on to for dear life right now is the fact that the city of greensboro finally accepted the report of the uh, the greensboro truth commission and actually apologized for the massacre of um, that that happened in Greensboro in '79, that 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 work that those people in Greensboro who were victims and survivors of that massacre have put in all of these years in saying we are not going to allow this history, this story to die. We are not going to allow also this history to turn us, the victims and survivors, into bitter people. Rather, we are going to make that, of that, that history part of our push to heal our community. So one is learn our history. Learn the history of your particular community. I mean, there are so many hidden stories in the US that people are, are carrying both the pain of, of those experiences and other members of the community are carrying the shame and guilt of those, of those events. And until they are on the table, the pain and the shame and the guilt can never be dealt with. Right. So my, my, one of my big things is people, let us talk about the history and let us, tell the true story of the history, not try and tell a story that is only about making us proud, but tell a story that is really about how we got to where we are. So don't, don't pretend slavery was a paragraph in US history. Slavery mm -hmm. was at least 10 volumes in the history of this country. And the economic and political structure that was laid during slavery continues to impact us now. The GI Bill was not some, you know, we, we talk about the GI Bill as though, again, it was something that happened in a vacuum and all GIs were able to benefit from the, the largesse of the nation. When we know that black GIs were cut out of the educational opportunities and many of the housing opportunities that the GI Bill gave to that, mm -hmm. that launched many white Americans into middle classdom. 
right? So, so for me, it is until and unless we talk about the history, we talk about the foundations that have set us on this path, then we are going to continue to say, um, you know, well, black people need to want to succeed if they're any, if they're going to succeed. Yeah. Really? Right. Which, when, when, when was that not part of a, a black story, a, 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 a striving for success? So that's one. The second that I would say is that we, in order to keep ourselves from bitterness and to be moving in a direction that is about diversity and inclusion, if you like, is to, 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 to be those who refuse to allow the questioning of anybody's humanity. And, and that's a hard one for me because, you know, when you have people out there saying with tiki torches saying, Jews will not replace us, blacks will not, you know, my first thing is you idiot, if I were ever to meet you, I would have a few choice cuss words for you and tell you what a low life you actually are. But then where does that get us? That just gets us at a point where we are calling one another low life. So as a counselor, it's like you try to meet people where they are, right? So if I'm trying to help you to kind of see yourself in a reflection of who you are, what you bring to the table, me trying to counteract you at the same level with the same tenacity is going to fall on deaf ears because you don't want to hear me. And so that's why you say that have these conversations. It's important for us to have these conversations. And a lot of times people are scared of these conversations, oh, right? Yeah. And so I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm getting pumped up by what you're sharing, right? Because we've done this, I don't know how many times, right? Um, before COVID, we did it face to face. But um, so these conversations, so help me with the audience who will watch this and say, well, wow, she was pretty loud and boisterous about those points, right? Because you are a black woman and you will kind of let your, your, your information come forth um, in the way that it does. But sometimes it scares people, right? Because oh, yeah. they say, they say, you know, you should, Angry be, black you should woman. be quiet. You should meet us where we are. You should meet me, keep me in my comfort zone, right? And yeah. so, your realness is really what needs to be at the table. And when you have these conversations, the expectation is the realness will come from the other side as well. So exactly. it's not that you are not listening to each other, but you understand that my excitement is about the possibilities of us being able to move forward into a better space. Yeah, and, and you know, um, so this, this, this whole thing about how we get loud and emotional and, and, and so I, when I was working at the Race Relations Institute at one of our conferences, um, you know, there was a boisterous conversation going on and a white woman stood up and said, oh, you know, when people are loud, I'm, I, get, I get scared and it's scaring me. And, and I was like, you know, when I want to get really evil, that's actually when I get quiet. Whoa. So when I'm quiet, that's when you need, that's when you need to be afraid, because when I am 
completely in the conversation. I'm in the conversation with all of me, with my body and soul. And, and, and I am, this is who I am. Right. And, you know, and, and, and if you have ever seen evil, evil actually tends to be silent. Mm. Evil is not loud. Evil does its deeds in darkness, in hiding, or with no, does not announce itself in the way that a loud black woman like me announces herself. So Breonna Taylor comes to mind. Right? So that you come in the dead of night and, 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 and don't even give a warning to people that you just bang down the door and open fire. And I, in, that, in, that, in that situation at the, the Race Relations Institute, I actually did a role play for her. Like, I can be the nastiest person, really, really quiet. That that, the volume is not that what the, where the danger is. The danger is, what are you coming into this conversation with? And, you know, and the fact that when we watch the vice presidential debate, that every single black woman watching that knew that Kamala had been told, you know, play it cool because we don't want to give them the opportunity to talk about angry black women. And I have reached a point in my life where I've started saying, you know what, that is something that is used to silence black women, this, this whole trope of the angry black woman. And therefore, I am going to step into that label from the beginning. And so often when I'm speaking, I will introduce myself, I say, I am the Reverend Nontombi Naomi angry black woman tutu, so that it's out there. Let's start from that place so that you cannot use it to try and shut me down. If you want to be in conversation with me, an honest conversation with me, I, this is me. And I want you to come as, as who you are. Right. So you're dropping the mic a couple of times today <laughs> in regards to how to come at you or how to come at Black women. And um, I'm excited about just everything that you always bring to the table. I've learned from you from day one of having you in my existence. And, uh, and so what, what makes you give? What makes you continue on this fight in, in terms of making sure that, you know, the world gets to be right. You know, it gets to come from a right space because you, you shared a lot of wisdom today, especially with regards to how South Africa has transitioned through that time. I think the thing that I pick up most is the story of you sharing that white people thought that you were going to come back. They stocked up because they thought if Nelson Mandela was to become president, that there would be this holy war or this kind of craziness that goes on. And that wasn't never, ever what the challenge was about or what the, the fight was about. The fight was about equality and equity. And so what, what keeps you going? So a, a number of things keep me going. One is uh, the people who came before me. 
So knowing, um, you know, only one of my grandparents ever got to vote in the land of their birth. And that was my grandmother, my mother's mother, who was 91 at that, um, at our first election and, um, and, and voted for the first and last time in her life. And so having that knowledge that those people continued to struggle, even though, as my grandmother said to me was that, you know, I struggled because I believed that this day would come in your lifetime. I was struggling for you, for Mm. liberation for you. And that, um, and the fact that I managed to have a taste of it is, you know, like sprinkles on the cupcake. That wasn't what I was holding out for. And so the fact that there were generations of people before me who dreamt of a free South Africa, who dreamt of a just United States, who went to their graves, never seeing what it is that they struggled for and yet continue to struggle right up until their death, that keeps me going. The fact that I have these people who went before me and laid out the path that I have now. So that's one. The second is the ones who come after me. So for me specifically, my children, that I I inherited a world that people had sacrificed for me to be the world that I um, inherited to be a little bit better than the world they inherited. And therefore, I think that I have that responsibility to the generation that comes after me, that to live in hope and to struggle for equity and justice for them. Um, And then the, the other is, again, going back to my faith, is that I believe that, you know, when God looked at creation and said, it is good, that that was God's intention from day one, was that creation would be a good place, a place where all of creation was able to thrive. And so I believe that that is part of the challenge of faith, that God calls us to work with her to to rebuild that good creation, to, to to take the creation back to that place that God can then look around and again say, this is good. You know, I did really good here. Well, you've always done good. Um, (laughs) Archbishop Desmond Tutu and your mom have created a soul that has touched the world. It definitely has touched me. Um, I, I can't do anything but give kudos to you and just the outpouring of love you have given to me um and in the in the mentoring and the and the backhand and uh, <laughs> and the fun you know i love you i know you love me and um what <laughs> and you, you know i'm in awe of of what you have become i tell oh, wow. people i tell people all the time i'm like see this is what being a a, a teacher is about it is the, the, the celebration that you can have when 
you can say the student has far surpassed anything that the teacher could have imagined. And so that you have far surpassed anything that I have done or been in the world. And I am so proud that I had a little bit to do with a lot, a lot, a lot to do and, with it. You also for my little summer joy. Um, you, you always bring my her up. My queen, my queen summer joy. Yeah. Yes, and so, um, wow. I just want to thank you. Um, I can't thank you enough for being a part of this podcast. Um, and, and, and when I called you and asked you to come and, and do this for me, you were like, what was it that you said? I said, you don't even have to ask. It's already been answered. And, um, and I appreciate that. And, um, and I just love you to death. And I just want to um, encourage others to kind of hear your story. Look past everything and hear the story and know that we can make a change. Um, yeah. You know, you, you lived through it in two, on two continents. Yeah. You know what the possibilities are. Exactly. And, and we have to live and have those as our value system in order to move forward. This is not about hatred. This is really about love. Amen. It's about all of us being able to have equal, equal access, equity for all. And so I thank you and I appreciate you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I try to get you, um, you know, <laughs> one of the great things about you being in California is that when I send late night texts, I don't have to worry about you being asleep. Waking me up. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that's been the fun part, but um, it's really been um, a pleasure to listen to you today, to hear you drop the mic several times and um and again um we'll, we'll live and learn from this experience um Amen. hopefully you know you'll be in a good space um next week i'll have to check Ooh, that out. from your lips to god's ears there you go and see you're a praying woman and that's what we need we need a praying woman amen <laughs> so thank and you voting we need voting people too yes so, Vote. <laughs> and so um, next um, on, on matters of diversity, um, you'll be interested in hearing this, is that on Friday at one o'clock, I have the UCF College Republican um, President, Didi Malka, and the UCF College Democrats President, Hannah Anson, who are gonna be my guests. And we're gonna talk about the election and, their, and, and the way they see um, moving forward. So, um, and then the following- we're gonna have counselors in and talk about the effects of whatever the results are on the election. Yeah. And so um, we're, we're really trying to keep the university going with regards to this. But again, thank you so much. Yes, thank you all for um, listening in and hope to see you all on Friday. So um, with right. that, we're gonna check out and, um, and I'll be talking with you soon. Okay then, take care. Thanks for having me. Thank you for enjoying um, your time with us. How's that? <laughs> All right. Take care. All righty. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to our show, which is brought to you by UCF Foundation. This has been Matters of Diversity with Dr. B.